In 2006, a teacher's aide was crossing the street to get to work when a stolen minivan struck her. She died in the hospital and a suspect was soon identified. But when the evidence contradicted the Crown's theory of the crime, justice for Nancy Galbraith Quick would be delayed. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to the 12 Days of Crime Lines. We are on day 11, almost done, and I want to thank everyone for the support. This is another unsolved case we are covering today, and it feels like it's one that could be solved with just one tip. I don't know who committed this crime, but I believe that person would have told someone, maybe out of guilt, and that person who was told needs to pick up the phone. There have been publication bans in this case, which does make the information released pretty thin, but word really does need to get out there about this one. This is a case suggested by Andre, and it took place in Emeryville, Ontario, which is east of Windsor along the shore of Lake St. Clair. 40-year-old Nancy Galbraith Quick was living in the nearby city of Tecumseh in early 2006 with her two children, ages 11 and 8. She and her husband, Scott, separated in September 2005 and were in the process of divorcing. The custody agreement was still being sorted out. Nancy worked at her parents' restaurant, Jerry and Jenny's Diner, for the previous two decades, but around the time of her separation, she also took a job at St. William Catholic School. She was a teacher's aide in special education and reportedly loved the job showing up with energy and excitement. She would still help out at her parents' restaurant as often as she could. To give a little bit of the layout to understand what happened next, we need to know that the school where she worked was located on the back edge of a residential neighborhood. Across the street from the school were regular houses, and behind the school and on either side were essentially fields. The street in front of the school was not a through street. Each end of it curved up onto a side street. So there's a very little traffic in this area except during school pickup and drop off because there's really no reason to be back in that area otherwise. It led nowhere except to the school and, of course, the church that is attached. On February 23rd, 2006, Nancy dropped her kids off at their school and then headed to work. She parked her car across the street from the school around 8.45 in the morning. She crossed over heading towards the school when suddenly a minivan pulled out of the parking lot and took off, hitting Nancy as she crossed the street. The driver didn't stop, didn't even try to brake. In fact, witnesses said the driver had revved the engine shortly before taking off down the road and hitting Nancy. Nancy was thrown into a tree where she struck her head on the trunk. This incident was witnessed by multiple children, and with mostly children as witnesses, there was not a lot of detail to be given. But one child did say it looked like Nancy was messing with her purse and was about to turn back to go to her car when she was hit. Other witnesses said that the minivan was parked in the church parking lot prior to Nancy arriving, and it accelerated shortly before hitting Nancy. 
Nancy, unconscious, was taken to the hospital in Windsor and then transported to Detroit Receiving Hospital, which had a level one trauma unit. She was in critical condition. The police investigation into this hit and run soon got its first lead when the vehicle used was found abandoned that same day. It was a gold Dodge Caravan that had been stolen that morning from a nearby neighborhood. I'm under the impression the owner had left it idling in the driveway to warm up and someone had hopped in and taken off. When the minivan was found, it had a large dent on the hood and the witnesses said a man had gotten out of it and ran off. The description of the man was that he was average height, average weight, white, and had medium length dark hair. The minivan had been stolen very close to the school, but not that same neighborhood where the roads would go through. So the driver would have had to leave where the minivan was stolen from, go out on the main road, and then turn into the neighborhood where the school was located to get to the spot where Nancy was hit. If someone stole the van and was trying to get away with it, It made no sense for it to be in front of that school. Like I said before, there's no reason to be down there unless you're going to the school. And it's not like someone was dropping their kid off in a minivan that they had stolen minutes before. Because of this geography, the police believed this was a targeted attack. And our first clue that the police thought this from early on was that Nancy was admitted into the hospital under a fake name which meant they were concerned that she was in danger. Perhaps the killer would come back and finish the job as Nancy held on for five days. But on February 28th, 2006, at the age of 40, she succumbed to her injuries, having never regained consciousness. The investigators looked into Nancy's life to see if there was anyone who would have benefited from her death being that Nancy and her husband Scott were separated and in the middle of a custody case, he was obviously on that list. He was questioned and provided an alibi for the time of the murder. That morning, he had taken their son to an early orthodontist appointment, dropped him off at home before Nancy took him and his sister to school. Scott said he then went to a Tim Hortons and that was proven by the time-stamped CCTV footage of him in the coffee shop. It didn't seem like Scott would have had enough time to drop his son off, just so happened to find a vehicle to steal, get to the school before Nancy, wait for her, take off down the road, hitting her, drive to where the van was dumped, get back to his car, wherever that was, and then make it to the Tim Hortons in time to show up on that security footage. The timeline here was a major hurdle they just weren't able to overcome. Though the cloud of suspicion continued to linger over him, Scott announced to the Windsor Star in early March that he planned to offer a reward in the case. Everyone had high hopes for a quick resolution to this case, but that would not happen. In January 2007, leading up to the one-year anniversary of Nancy's death, Crime Stoppers filmed and aired a reenactment in the hopes it would bring forward new witnesses. No slam dunk evidence came from it. 
The school Nancy worked at planted a tree in her memory, which also helps get the case in the media again. And then after that, it was mostly just anniversary coverage that repeated the same basics of the case and announced the reward, which started at $2,500 and eventually made its way up to $5,000 and then $50,000. This money was a combination of Crime Stoppers and Nancy's family. I'm not sure what, if any, contribution Scott had made. Meanwhile, Scott was given custody of his children as he was the surviving parent. He then up and moved. He quit his job, packed up, and took the kids five hours away. He started a music shop and never told Nancy's family he was moving. So her parents, Jerry and Jenny, went from seeing the kids two to three times a week while Nancy was alive and having periodic grandparent sleepovers to not getting to see them at all. According to Scott, he wasn't on speaking terms with Nancy's family at the time he moved, and the kids did not want to see them. But Nancy's family still tried to forge some connection. Nancy's brother intervened, trying to talk Scott into a visit. Jerry and Jenny started taking out ads in local newspapers, wishing them a Merry Christmas in the hopes of getting the message to the kids that they were still loved and not forgotten. Nancy's family first lost her, and then they lost access to having her children in their lives, which was just piling pain on top of grief. The case grew cold until nine long years later, when in March of 2015, an arrest was made. Nancy's estranged husband, Scott Quick, was charged with first-degree murder and denied bond. And this is where the publication ban comes into play. The judge put the publication ban in place as to not prejudice any future jury. So the reasons for denying bail were included in this ban, as was the testimony at the preliminary hearing. But we do know some of what came out at the hearing anyway. The Crown presented the basics of their case over four months from January through April 2016 using dozens of witnesses. The forensic evidence in this case was very thin. Six microscopic fibers had been found in the stolen van that were indistinguishable from fibers from two blankets found in Scott's truck. So it's possible they had transferred from Scott's truck to the stolen vehicle on his clothing. That said, these fibers were polyester and they were microscopic. They were probably indistinguishable from several other items from other people's homes and cars. This was hardly a slam dunk. They didn't have Scott's prints in the stolen vehicle or his DNA. So this case was largely circumstantial. Witnesses testified to the contentious relationship between Nancy and Scott, particularly after their separation. They went so far as to say that Scott was stalking Nancy and she was afraid of him. But even the circumstantial case wasn't as strong as you would hope for. They still had a major hurdle with that timeline. They had not figured out how Scott made it to the Tim Hortons in time. 
They also had a problem with some eyewitnesses. The two who testified to seeing the man get out of the stolen minivan and run off, they both described a man who didn't look like Scott Quick. Even so, the judge determined on December 19th, 2016, that there was enough here to at least take this to trial and let a jury decide. The trial was expected to start in the summer of 2017. But just about four weeks later, the Crown attorney called Nancy's family into the office for a meeting. They thought the discussion was going to be about some type of plea deal reached between the prosecution and the defense. Instead, they heard that the next day it would be announced that the charge of first-degree murder against Scott Quick was going to be dropped. Even after going through months of testimony at the preliminary hearing and having the judge say there was enough to go to trial with, the Crown prosecutor just could not fight that timeline. He said that it was physically impossible for Scott to have done this. He didn't think they had a high likelihood of getting a conviction that they could be confident in. Nancy's family members were understandably shocked and hurt. They had been told they got the guy, and Scott had spent two years in pretrial detention at this point. And now he was going to go free, with the Crown saying he couldn't have done it. While there was evidence he had allegedly stalked his estranged wife, there wasn't evidence that he carried out her murder. Scott's defense attorney obviously supported this. They believed tunnel vision was what kept this case from being solved. Even when Scott's alibi made it nearly impossible for him to have done it, the police kept after him. Over the nine years the case was being investigated, they kept looking into Scott, even sending undercover officers to try to get evidence from him just as he was out living his life. They found nothing, and the evidence that led to Scott being charged was everything they already knew within the first year or so of the investigation. It made more sense to the defense that the person who stole the minivan was a local. He was someone who saw this particular neighbor leave their vehicle running to warm up while they got ready for their day. He waited for them to do it that morning and hopped inside. Because really, what were the odds that Scott Quick, planning to kill his wife, would have just so happened to have found this car? It seems more likely that the person who took this car expected to find it. One of the witnesses had said it looked like Nancy looked at her purse and then started to head back to her car. What if she realized she had forgotten something? The vehicle thief was heading down the road and didn't anticipate her turning back, so he thought he was going to just zip by her. This isn't a large multi-lane road. This is a small residential street. Maybe Nancy didn't see him in time. He didn't see her change her course in time, and she ended up in his path. In the stolen vehicle, he fled the scene, dumping the minivan as soon as he could and taking off on foot. If this is what happened, he almost surely lived in the area at the time, and a thorough search of the neighborhood with the description from the witnesses may have found him. 
Nancy's murder remains unsolved, and Scott spent two years locked up for something the Crown later said he couldn't have done. There has been absolutely no justice for anyone in this case. But there could be. If a thief stole a vehicle and this hit and run was not intentional, could he really live with that guilt without offloading it on someone? And if he told someone, maybe they're ready to do the right thing and come forward. And maybe it's not too late for a composite sketch of the man seen getting out of the minivan. Perhaps a neighbor will recognize him as someone who was around at the time. If you know anything about the 2006 hit-and-run murder of Nancy Galbraith Quick, you can contact the Essex County Crime Stoppers at 519-258-8477. The number will be in the show notes. (laughs) 